The ghost turned up in time for breakfast, summoned by the death rattle of cornflakes in their box. She arrived on foot, bare feet, bare-legged and white-knuckled, in a pale cotton nightie that clung to her calves and slipped off one shoulder, as jaunty as a hat. Her hair was damp with sleep sweat, whose wasn't that summer, and stiff strands of it fenced in her 13-year-old face, like blinkers strapped to a colt. By the time we got there, she was already halfway across the cul-de-sac, her unseeing eyes, her stop-me-shuffle. They'd taken her as far as that, and she might have made it further too, if it wasn't for the car that sat idling at a 90-degree angle to her path, a right angle made from her wrongs. The driver's elbow pointed accusingly out of the window, and he leaned out and shouted to each neighbour as they arrived on the scene. She came from nowhere, as if that was her crime, this girl who appeared from thin air. We came running when we heard shouting. We ran into the street and that's when we saw her, illuminated against the heat haze and the headlights that hadn't helped and that weren't needed anyway, now the sun had sat up. It's Cordy Van Apfel. Jesus Christ, is she sleepwalking? Can she hear us? Can you see us, you reckon? Then Mr Van Apfel appeared, stepping forward with his arms outstretched and his palms to the sky as if coming in from the Lord's outfield. In that instant he blocked the sun. Then he took another step closer and the eclipse was over and the sunshine streamed back in just as sinister as before. Nothing to see here, folks, he declared in his lay preacher's soothe. Nothing to see here. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Felicity McLean reading from her debut novel, The Van Apfel Girls Are Gone, where Tigger, an 11-year-old girl living in a hot, bushy Australian suburb, narrates the disappearance of her three young friends, the Van Apfel sisters, in 1992. Felicity is a journalist and an award-winning ghostwriter who co-wrote Body Lengths, the story of Olympic swimmer Liesl Jones. Felicity is here to chat about these missing Van Apfel girls. Hi, Felicity. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Angus. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So the book is set in 2012 and 1992, but we spend most of our time in the 90s thread of the story. And so many people who have read the book remark on how well you've captured that sense of childhood if you, if you grew up in that time. Um, that so many Australians shared just in really bloody hot suburbs that were surrounded <laughs> by bush. Um, so when you think of your own childhood, what are the first sort of images that come into your mind? Oh, interesting. Um, well, for a start, the 1990s, you probably weren't even around having a childhood in the 1990s, Angus. But for those of us that were kids in the 90s, um, yeah, so I had uh, a really wonderfully ordinary Australian childhood in um, a suburb in sort of a, a, one of those wonderful fringe suburbs where everything looks really orderly and neat and you've got roads laid out and houses and then you walk through somebody's backyard and there's no fence and suddenly you're in thick scrub, wonderful thick scrub. Um, and I love those 
liminal spaces in Australia where, you know, it looks like a real suburb, a proper town, and then suddenly you're in the middle of the bush. Yeah, yeah, with like red belly black snakes. That's like right. thrashing around your feet and stuff. That's it. Yeah. What did you do to pass the time as a child in this uh, suburb? I, well, so because it was a bush suburb, we spent a lot of time making cubbies and... Um, roaming around in the bush. We had a lot of freedom, so we were allowed to play outside a lot. Interestingly, I grew up with brothers, not sisters. Like, there's a lot of sisters in the Van Atfel girls are gone. Mm. So there's the three Van Atfel sisters, and then, of course, there's Tika and her sister, Laura. But I grew up with brothers and all the kids in the street and my cousins and everybody that I played with um, outside as a kid seemed to be boys. So maybe this is wishful thinking on my part, these gangs of girls. You're a journalist and ghostwriter. Did you always know that you wanted to go into the profession of telling people stories? I didn't actually. I really fell into it. So when I finished university, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh, My main aim at university was to stay studying for as long as possible because the uni lifestyle very much suited me. (laughs) So I think I went through the course book and studied just about everything I could. Um... And yeah, when I came out, I really fell into freelance writing, freelance journalism. Um, One of the best gigs I had as a journalist was writing for the Daily Telegraph's arts pages. And so each week I got to interview a different author about their book. And that was fabulous. I'd get all these books sent to me. I thought that was heavenly. So that was a really great gig as a freelancer doing those arts pages and then I found my way into ghostwriting and the thing I liked about that compared to journalism was you got to spend a lot more time on the same project with the same person you really get to know somebody when you're ghostwriting with them it's it was great you really get to learn a lot about their story and their background and that was really interesting yeah um I've always been curious as to how ghostwriting actually works like does the famous person or person of interest just sort of like send you like paragraphs and you're like, oh my God, that's terrible. (laughs) Like how does that relationship actually work? It's really, it's as different as the people you're working with. So Mm. every instance is different. In my experience, I've found it works differently each time. Um, Some people like to be really, really involved, others less so. But I find the easiest way to chat to people and to get somebody's story is sit down with them with a dictaphone in the middle of the table and just chat. So I would meet with people and talk for anywhere from about 45 minutes up to two hours at a stretch, just about everything, you know, like the next chapter, what we need to get down, but also more broadly about their life. And you'd go off at tangents and discover all sorts of interesting things. Um, But yeah, just chatting to people I found was the, the best way to get somebody's story down. Yeah, the relationship you would have with those people must be so interesting because not only are they telling you all about their life, but then you're also sort of in charge in how that life appears on the page. Yeah, and that's a really interesting conundrum, isn't it? When you're, this is somebody's story and you need to treat that so reverentially. And yet there's the practical side of how are we going to get this enormous thing down onto the page? We've got 80 or 90,000 words. Um, So yes, structure comes into play there. And voice, obviously, you want to capture the person's voice. So, again, that's why talking to them, listening to hours and hours of transcription, of um, interviews while you transcribe, but that's really helpful to get your ear into somebody's voice. Um, Yeah, but it is. It's about spending time with the person. And you learn 
all sorts of things. People are so incredibly generous with, oh, I met people's parents, you meet their family, they tell you their deepest, darkest secrets, you know, what underwear they're wearing that day. (laughs) Amazing things people tell you when you're a ghostwriter. It's hilarious. I was going to bring up the interviews that you've done with authors as well, um, because some of the authors you chatted to I've read were like Lee Child, Nicholas Sparks, Kathy Lett, like some really fantastic, huge authors. Um, now that you're uh, an author yourself and a novelist now as well, was there anything you sort of came across in those interviews or any bits of writerly wisdom ah, that these people question. imparted to you that helped with writing? Uh, I know for a start that I'm much more comfortable asking the questions than being on the receiving end. (laughs) It's very strange (laughs) to go from being a journalist to this side of the table. Um, Yeah, I did. I got to interview some really, I remember being such a fangirl when I interviewed Irvine Welsh. I was so nervous. I couldn't get the questions out. Um, The thing that comes through and you hear these things all the time. It sounds trite, but it, it rings so true. Reading. Everybody I spoke to who was a successful author was reading all the time. They'd have, you know, I just read this amazing thing or did you see that article by or they were just always voracious readers. Um, Everybody seems to have a different way of going about it but has struck on a way that works for them like, oh, I'm really into writing between, you know, 8pm and 10pm at night or I find I can only work in the morning with a cup of tea or whatever it is but they've sort of hit on a a discipline that works for them. Yeah that reminds me I think I was reading an interview or listening to another interview that you did and one of the things that I hear a lot of debut authors say that always shocks me and just makes me admire them so much is how often that they've slipped in their writing to those early hours of the day before their real life begins, you know, getting up at 3, 4, 5 a.m. And you are one of those people, right? That's how the Van Atfield Girls was written in the early hours of morning. Yeah, I'm not naturally a morning person. I think I was coming off the back of having um, very small children, so I wasn't. I was pretty sleep-deprived to begin with, so I thought, let's, let's roll with this. Um, but, yeah, I wrote primarily between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m., um, that was when the bulk of it was written and somebody pointed out it's a very, it has a very dreamy feel to it and I, did, I wonder if that was because of the state I was in when I was writing <laughs> a lot of it. That sort of semi-awake coffee hasn't quite kicked in yet. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. even be able to string a sentence together, <laughs> so that's incredible. <laughs> okay, so uh, tell us about this book, The Van Apfel Girls. What sort of kicks it off or kicks off the action of this book? Okay, so this is narrated by Tika, who is a girl living in the suburbs. Uh, Tika is 11 and 1 sixth precisely. Um, and that's kind of the person that Tika is. She likes to know what's going on. She's inquisitive. She is precise. Um, and she tells the story of the three Van Apfel sisters, Hannah and Cordelia and Ruth, who live just at the top of her cul-de-sac and who disappear one night during the school's outdoor concert by the river and are never seen again. Do you remember where this story started to bubble up for you? Was there a particular image that came to you or was it one of the characters that came first and then the story built around them? Like, how did it come to be? I guess the thing I started with was mood, really. So I... Going back to what we said about that dreamy mood, I really wanted to write a story that was kind of ethereal and slightly eerie at the same time, that can't quite pin it down quality that I love about books like 
Picnic at Hanging Rock by Joan Lindsay and Jeffrey Eugenides' The Virgin Suicides, those slightly, slightly left of centre but very dreamy stories. So I started with the mood and that was what I wanted to try and create. And from there it was uh, the narrator's voice, Ticker, that came to me next. And I thought, yes, this is the person that can guide us through this dreamy story. I heard that before maybe you even knew that there was a novel in this idea that you'd accidentally sort of put yourself in the situation of reading out a passage from the story to a group of people <laughs> at a writer's festival. Yeah, what happened there? Right. I backed myself into a corner with that. Um, so I was invited to be part of the Sydney Writers Festival in 2016. I was on a panel for emerging writers and the theme for the event was creativity and place. So how did the geography of your childhood influence your writing? Um, and this event was being held at the Brian Brown Theatre in Bankstown, which is a great theatre in Brian Brown, the actor Brian Brown's honour. So Brian was the host that evening and we were all sitting on stage in this panel and it was a, you know, I was up there with Nakia Louie and Zoe Norton Lodge and all these brilliant writers. I really didn't have a whole lot to contribute to the theme because I was a ghostwriter. I hadn't written anything under my name at the time, um, which was how I found myself reading from my novel to the assembled 200 or so guests. And this, I was really clutching at straws here. This was a novel that existed mostly in my head. I just had about 5,000 words. And so I read out this passage about uh, the valley and the bush and, you know, how this was sort of loosely inspired by the valley of my childhood. And I thought I'd survived. I thought I got through the panel session. And then right at the end, they had question time. And this tall figure right in the front row was first on his feet and he had some questions it was Brian Brown. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I know. And he wanted to know what was my novel called and where was it headed next and what happened next and all these things. And I said, oh, that's a really good question, yeah. Brian. <laughs> um, it's always the Q&A section of a writer's festival where everything goes off the rails. So. <laughs> that's right. That's it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, n- not in your case, I guess, in the end. So thank you, Brian. Wow. That's right. That's yes. a cool connection. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you were saying before how it's kind of funny that the young people in this book that you spend so much time with and that narrate it are all sisters. Um, mm. So you've got Tigger and her sister Laura and then obviously the Van Apfel girls are all sisters. But you grew up with brothers. So why do you think you gravitated towards writing about sisters? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure it's quite that it was a thing. deliberate strategy from the outset. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I like about the narrator Ticker is that she's not necessarily a really girly girl. She could be, uh, somebody said to me actually, they thought they were going to find out, have it revealed that Ticker was actually male. Um, I guess it's a kind of androgynous nickname. So yeah, it, it I did want her voice to be quite broad and not, I didn't want to pigeonhole her in any way. It's interesting because I was, it just struck me as I was reading a section of the Van Apfel Girls where um, Tigger and Laura over at the Van Apfel Girls household and they're all sort of just sprawled out on the lawn together and sort of, you know, just having this uh, very sort of normal chat, I guess, yeah, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Yada, yada, yada. And I just realised, wow, this is like the first time I've sort of read about a gang of kids like this with no boys present. Yeah. It was weird. And 
Also, somebody asked me, why uh, did I deliberately intend to set out and write a story about rebel girls? And I thought that was interesting because I didn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I necessarily did that as a strategy. Um, my feeling towards it is more, well, why, why wouldn't we have a story about girls? Like I read stats recently, um, I think it was the BBC did a survey and something like less than 50% of protagonists in kids' books are female, way less than 50%. And something like only one in 10 females in kids' books have a voice. And they're talking about picture book level. But this is something that we see right throughout all books, this sort of predominance for um, books by male authors to be reviewed more than by female authors. Um, they get more column inches in newspapers, things like this. So... Yeah, maybe this was a subconscious feminist statement that these they are they are all rebel girls, but then why why should it be unusual, I think, that we're reading a story about so many girls? Why why is that even a thing? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why what makes it so awesome to read. One of the many things. Um so you brought up picnic at hanging rock before, mm-hmm. and of course whenever we're talking about children going missing into the bush, <laughs> this book comes up. I actually haven't read Picnic at Hanging Rock. What's all the fuss about? Oh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Um, it is, and it's also just such a brilliant movie. The Peter, Peter Weir film is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I really wanted to bottle some of that quality that, you know, so you can hear the pan pipes coming off the page, um, quality of Picnic at Hanging Rock. And... There are some deliberate nods in the book too. So the cul-de-sac where the kids are growing up is called Macedon Place, which is a nod to the Macedon Ranges where Picnic at Hanging Rock is. And, of course, I have a valley in my story where they go missing, which is an inverted rock in a sense. Um, And Ticker is often referred to as Ticker or TikTok, which is, again, a bit of a nod to. So Joan Lindsay was really into time. Um, One of the themes of Picnic at Hanging Rock is time and she apparently in real life Joan Lindsay had the ability to stop clocks um she would walk into rooms and quite commonly clocks would stop in her presence oh spooky I know right what a talent what a party trick to have (laughs) um so the name ticker is a bit of a riff on the this idea of time and tiktok and how she never quite let go of the story of the Van Apfel girls yeah, that's so cool. Um, I wonder how many sharp-eyed people are going to spot those little <laughs> clues that you've hidden. I love stuff like that. Yeah, little Easter fun, eggs. Huh? Yeah. So another thing we talk about when kids go missing and maybe why Australia has such a fascination with stories of, of children going missing into the bush is the Lindy Chamberlain case. Mm. Um, you referenced that in the book. Did you relook at that case specifically while you were writing the book? I did. I went back to it and it's interesting because that case was I was sort of conscious of that being a part of my childhood like I remember in the uh in the background the news would be on and adults in the house would be talking about it and I had to double check that as an adult I thought did did that really happen was the Lindy Chamberlain case still playing out while I was a kid am I remembering this right or that can't possibly be right and I went back and checked and of course it was all the the sort of um, compensation cases that were going through as late as the early 90s which seems phenomenal now that that happened in our lifetime that you know such a miscarriage of justice could have happened in our lifetime but yeah it, it went on as late as into the 90s. What I find really interesting about that case is um, there was this playwright called Alana Valentine that 
compiled yes. all of the letters sent to Lindy Chamberlain. Have you seen? I this? haven't. I have read amazing reviews about Alana's show, and very. I only discovered that in writing the Van Atwell Girls. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, but it's amazing the the broad spectrum of letters that she got sent to her. Like um, some of them were really horrible, calling her a vile murderess, and then other letters were like religious fanatics, and then others were right. sharing stories of other people who had kids who were attacked by animals and or tried to be eaten by snakes, saying, "I know this can happen. I know people don't believe you, but it's happened to me." Like wow. incredible, and that made me think of how that story just completely enveloped Australia like I don't know whether that's necessarily happened in my lifetime but maybe that's just a symptom of the fact that because there's so much media now maybe a story can't quite crack through and like take a whole nation now because there's so much going on that's interesting isn't it yeah I wonder if there that has had an effect and the news cycle now because it is a 24-hour news cycle we're bombarded with so much um the story can't have the same effect but then I as you were saying you know the response that Lindy the letters that Lindy Chamberlain received it's not dissimilar I guess now to what happens in social media and when people sort of pop their head up in the public eye you can only imagine what they receive yeah online yeah it's like a deluge of you know comments and stuff yeah um so yeah, as Australians, we are really obsessed with this phenomenon of kids going missing and of other terrible things. Um, like, you know, we have all these weird urban and bushland legends mm. and you sort of bring that out early on in the book and you reference like, you know, our ideas about panthers prowling around <laughs> yeah. the Blue Mountains and um, bunyips lurking in billabongs and backpacker murderers and bull sharks swimming up rivers and stuff like that. What do you think it is about the Australian landscape that w- our imagination is so vivid in inventing these monsters that prowl around, you know, the edges of our suburbia? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, I read up a little bit on Australian Gothic in literature while mm. I was writing this book and there's an academic, Jerry Turcott, who's d- written some really interesting essays. One is called Kangaroo Gargoyles, I think, about Australian Gothic and our sort of obsession with th- these things that you're talking about. Um, and one of the things that I found really fascinating is that so Gothic as a genre and there's so many people who've written what could be like loosely classed as touching on gothic people like um, Helen Garner and Kate Grenville and Patrick White have elements of this in some of their novels, some dark places they go to. Mm. I love this idea of, you know, we live in such a sunny, beautiful um, country, this gorgeous sunny landscape, and yet we're really interested in these dark things. And maybe it is that sort of juxtaposition that you know, because of the light, the dark is darker. Maybe this, maybe it's our landscape is crying out for this sort of, yeah, I don't know. But the trope of the lost child comes up again and again, doesn't it? Yeah, It's absolutely. something that really resonates with Australians. Yeah, I love that because the light is so bright, but the dark is darker. I love that. <laughs> well, maybe more on the lighter side of things, as we were talking about before, so many people remark about the Van Atfall Girls Are Gone um, this thread of nostalgia, like no matter what age they were in 1992, how well it transports them back to that time. Uh, what are sort of some of the things that you slipped in there, the props maybe, that you put in there to sort of signify that it is that time of the 90s? Yeah, that, uh, that was a lot of fun actually, the nostalgia side of things. Um, so the food for a start is, and I've had a couple of people say they have done book clubs with this book and 
only had 1990s food. That which is, is a such lot of a good fun. idea. So I love that. Bust out the Jats crackers <laughs> and the Redskins because this is the 90s. Um, yeah, so the food. So everybody's, you know, cooking rissoles or mincemeat or um, potato salad and iceberg lettuce and those sorts of things. And the kids, um, at one time they have a, having a slumber party, a pool party slumber party, which is, you know, what everybody did when they were kids in Australia growing up in the suburbs. Um, and at this slumber party, they decide to have a seance using a Monopoly board as their Ouija board. Um, and they're all walking around with their towels rolled up on their heads and, you know, eating cheesels off their fingers. So the nostalgia piece was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it was like the mention of Sunny Boys, like oh, yeah. immediately. I was like, that is like a relic from yes, the 90s. Yes. It just took me straight back. And somebody's playing a Game Boy. Oh, like, yes, oh, of Game course. Boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we did in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Played the Atari and the Game Boy. Yeah. Um, and did seances on Monopoly boards. <laughs> I didn't quite get that far, but that's an interesting <laughs> one. Um, so... As you know better than anyone, writing a book or a novel of any kind is such a gargantuan task. So as you were writing The Van Apfel Girls, what was it that kept you going? Like, why did this story want to be written? Mm. I always had in my mind that it was going to be ultimately unresolved in terms of where The Van Apfel Girls had gone. So I knew that I was working towards an unresolved or an open ending. So it's open for interpretation. So readers, um, there are, throughout the novel, there are several plausible suspects, several plausible scenarios, but it is ultimately unresolved in terms of where those three girls are. So I knew what I was writing towards. Um, so that kept me going. And yeah, I guess it's one of those things where you get a certain... I don't know, there were times when I was more enthusiastic about writing it than others, times where getting up at 5am was a more appealing idea than other days. Um, you get to points where you were so far in and you think, oh, I'm not sure I can finish this, but I've got, you know, 40,000 words on the page. There's no turning back now. Yeah. So I'm sure that's a common thing with most novels. There yeah. are points at which you think, oh, what am I doing? What am I started? Too late now, though. That's gotta right. Got to keep going. Yep, yeah, got to keep going now. That's very interesting working towards an ending that isn't really an ending in the stereotypical sense. Why did you want to work towards an ending that was unresolved? Oh, I love those sorts of books and films where, you know, when you finish watching a movie and then you sit up for another two hours discussing it with the person next to you or going onto social media and going, well, what did everyone else think? Or I love those. Oh, really? You saw it that way? I had a completely different interpretation or no, as if they were guilty. It was this person over here. So I love those sorts of books and films where, where the, I guess where the reader is a part of the creative process, where their understanding of character and their interpretation of the facts as they're given to them matters. Um, so I really, I really wanted to create something that was open-ended and where there are shades of grey. But at the same time, you need to have a certain amount of resolution. I, you know, didn't want readers to be throwing the book across the room in frustration. So the story, I guess you can say it's not a whodunit, this novel. The real story is the story of Ticker uh, and how she comes back as an adult and how she grows and develops and whether or not she is going to come to some level of acceptance or understanding. And in that sense, 
the story, the narrative arc is resolved. I guess it's sort of more realistic in many ways as well, like because so many of these cases don't end in a, in a red bow at all. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Felicity, before I let you go, I would love to get some book recommendations from you. Once people have read The Van Apple Girls Are Gone, <laughs> what should they read next? Oh, excellent. Um, I have, what have I read recently that's great? I have just finished, uh, I've gone back into the classics and just read Robert Drew's Our Sunshine, uh, which is an interpretation of the Ned Kelly story, which is fantastic. Uh, I also just read Daisy and the Six, Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Um, and also I've just discovered Lauren Groff. Uh, I started with Fates and Furies and that was fantastic. Yeah, I had a lot of good things about that book. Excellent. Um, well, thank you for those. And thank you for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you. And I've had the best time reading The Van Apple Girls Are Gone. So it's really exciting to have you in. Thank you so much, Felicity. Thank you very much for having me, Angus. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Good Reading Podcast. The Van Apple Girls Are Gone by Felicity McLean is published by Fourth Estate. It's out now through all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online store at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Catch you soon.